This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good morning. We are ready to begin our last session of this day. And I think our last session of this uh, weekend We've been discussing the subject of unity in the church, and uh, I would like to join my brother Dan to, to also present uh, uh, the last section of this seminar on unity, is unity wishful thinking. Before we begin, I invite you to bow your heads as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of study, for the privilege of prayer. We thank you for being with us today. We thank you for the gift of life. As we look at this enormous subject of unity in the church, we ask first and foremost that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. For without your Holy Spirit, we cannot be united. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Unity, wishful thinking. I'd like to begin with uh, an outline, what we would like to cover today. Uh, first, what unity is not. Uh, the secondly, we want to cover unity, a divine imperative. Thirdly, we want to look at Acts 15, as a model for unity. And then we'll look at the basis for Adventist unity. And lastly, we'll look at the motivation for unity in our church. What unity is not? You know, it is often said that unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. You might be from England, and another person may be from Kenya, and they are all Adventists. Different cultures, different backgrounds, but they have unity. They don't have to, to share the same parents, same mother. They don't have to share the same test buds, but they have unity. But what is the basis of that unity? Unity is not uniformity. I think it is clear that unity is never uniformity. In fact, even science tells us that every, every snowflake is different from the other. The structure are different. Can you imagine that every piece of snow is different from the other? Not all pieces of snow are alike, but yet they are all snow. No snowflakes are alike. I think... I was trying to find out where I got that, but I was trying to, I think I heard it or read it somewhere, where it also said that no leaf on every tree is like the other. So it's interesting that we can still have unity and yet not be the same. So it's a complex, a complex yet achievable unity we can achieve unity in the church. So unity is not uniformity. 
coexistence of truth and falsehood can also be unity. There is, there is a, a concept that the church ought to be a larger umbrella holding different schools of thought, different theologies in the church. Can we call that unity at the end of the day? Coexistence it does not mean that it is unity. Amen? Different schools of thought cannot suggest unity in the church. Various schools of theological thoughts and uh, presuppositions cannot imply unity in the church. And this actually, I would call it a counterfeit unity. It's a counterfeit unity. Because God does not call us to have different minds. He calls us to have one mind, the mind of Christ. And as long as we have different minds, we have a counterfeit unity. We may all call ourselves, call ourselves Adventist, but we have different minds. And so is that unity? That's not unity at all. So I would like to transition into unity as a divine imperative. The kind of unity God calls us to as a church. Unity as a divine imperative. We're going to look at unity in the Trinity, the oneness of God. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. And this is the famous, every, every child in Israel had to memorize this Shema. This was a prayer. I think even today in Israel, every Jewish child has to memorize this prayer. It's like the prayer of our Lord. Shema Israel, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Ehad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That particular word, one, is Ehad. Although it implies that God is multiple beings in the Trinity, but yet there exhibits one. There is unity in the Trinity. There is unity in the Trinity. It is in the plural form and implies one among others, one in a joined or shared oneness. If God was not one, Moses would have used a different word. He would have used the word, probably the word Yahid, which is in a singular form and implies one in a unitary form. So we see, first and foremost, that truly, Unity is a divine imperative because even in the Trinity itself, there is unity. God in himself is united. And so it should not surprise us that God calls us to be what? Of one mind. And even when Jesus prays, as Dan was telling us, when Jesus pray, prays that we may be one with him as he's one with the Father, there is a unity implied in the Trinity. So there is a basis for unity. There is a basis for biblical unity. Because even in God himself, there is that unity. I would like also to suggest, uh, as, as an example, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 24, the Bible says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. 
that word appears again. There shall be echad. There shall be one. A husband and a wife. They shall be one. Two people becoming one. Yet without losing that individuality. Isn't that good news? That the same unity that is found in God. God calls husband and wife to emulate the same unity that is found between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. No wonder God is against divorce. No wonder God is against any other forms of marriage apart what he has instituted, instituted in Genesis chapter 2. The same word is used there. That a man shall leave his home and shall be united to his wife and they shall be one. The same word, ehad, is used there. Unity, a divine imperative. Unity, a divine imperative. The point is that biblical unity is first exhibited in the Trinity. Secondly, as Dan illustrated or mentioned it to us, we find that also Christ, Christ prays for this unity five times. Five times. We won't repeat it since he already covered it. Five times Christ prays for the unity of the church. John 17 verse 11, verse 21, verse 22, verse 23 he prays for this unity, that they may be one as we are one. And in John 17, verse 21, we find that Jesus prays for this unity, that it may become a testimony to the world. So, unity is essential for the proclamation of the gospel. As a church, if we are united, the world will notice that truly there is something unique, different about this church. This unity is not a testimony of God. We need unity for the witness of the gospel. So it is a divine imperative that we be united. I would like also to suggest that even the word church, the word church, commonly called ecclesia in Greek, it also calls us to unity. The word ecclesia which is commonly used as a church, it is literally translated the ones called out. We all share the same calling. God calls us out. We are all called out. You and me, regardless where you're from, regardless of our background, we share the same background as long as we are in the church. So God has this unique calling upon the church. The church is that which is called out. Is that which is called out. The word ecclesia, for example, appears five times in a singular form. And all this singular form is to a local church. And even if you take it in a universal church, in a, in a worldwide church, that word also appears there. About six times it appears in plural form as well. So we have the same calling. That's the point I want to share. The basis for our unity. To put it in Adventist terms, we are a called out people as a church with a calling out message. Come out, my people. We are a called out people with a calling out message. Come out, my people. As we read Revelation 14 and Revelation 18, we are a called out people with a calling out message. Come out, my people. So we have this thing that we share, this calling from God as a church. So no matter where you're from, no matter what's your background, so as long as God has called you, we have something we share. 
And it should be the basis for our unity. Amen? It should be the basis for our unity. Uh, thirdly, we want to look at this keyword in the book of Acts. One accord in the book of Acts. The phrase one accord appears 11 times in the book of Acts. One accord literally means one mind, same mind. In fact, Paul uses the same word in Romans 15. One mind. And we are told that we should have the mind of Christ. One mind. This word. One mind. The mind of Christ. Unity in thinking. Yesterday we looked at that we are mostly divided in thinking. Because we have divisions that are caused by sin. And therefore also our thinking are distorted. And we need unity in thinking. And here again the Bible calls us for unity in thinking. Unity of one mind. Same mind. We should all possess the same mind. The mind of Christ. Unity is a divine imperative. A divine imperative. May I also suggest... Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Acts, chapter 1, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 1, chapter 2. Let's read verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Then chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. When the day of Pentecost came. So we find that unity precedes Pentecost. Before, as a church, we, we experience the latter rain, we need to be united. Before the apostles, before the apostles received the Holy Spirit, they were united. They possessed this, this one mind. They, were, they had this mind of Christ and the Holy Spirit descended upon them. In fact, Ellen White alludes to this. She says that they were united in feeling, in thought, and in action. They were united in feeling, in thought, and in action. That particular phrase, in feeling, and in thought, and in action. In feeling, implying that they were united with one love for one another. They had this love, this common love for one another. They loved others. They loved each other. They cared for each other. As the book of Acts tells us or shows us that they cared for one another. No one thought that this was my property but they shared it freely. They shared everything they had. They had this one mind. They had this one unity. Unity of feeling. And then they had the unity of thought. The unity of mind. They had one mind because the Holy Spirit was still working upon them as well. I would like to believe that they had received the, what, the former reign. The, the Holy Spirit was leading them into repentance. As Ellen White also alludes on it, that the Holy Spirit leads us into repentance. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot kneel on our knees and ask for the forgiveness of sin. 
So you can see, every phase of our lives, the Holy Spirit is there. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Unity is one of the necessary conditions for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So we see again that unity precedes Pentecost. Fifthly, I want to suggest that also the purpose of the Holy Spirit is for the unity of church. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we read from verse 10. And here is how the Bible puts it. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fulfill, he might feel all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Verse 12. For the perfecting of saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith. Till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Until we all come in the unity of faith. The purpose, of the, the, the purpose of, the, of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives you and I is so that the church may be edified, but also that the church may educate it, that we may teach one another for the purpose of what? For the purpose of unity. Until we all come in the unity of faith, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. So I ask you a question today. Have we come... Have we reached the unity of faith? Have we reached the unity of faith? No. Which implies that we still need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We still need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. By the way, this also can be used as an argument in favor of Ellen White. Because she received a prophetic gift for the, what? For the edification of the church. So if you have the, the gift of teaching, you receive that gift for the edification of the church until all the church has come what? Into the unity of faith. If you have the gift of preaching, you are using it to edify the church until the church has come into what? Into the unity of faith. If you have the gift as... The apostle says some are given the gift of, of, of evangelists, others of pastors, others of teachers. All these gifts are given for the edification of the church, for the perfecting of the saints, for the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity of faith. Unity is a divine imperative. We need unity in the church. Can you say amen? We need unity in the church. Thirdly, I want to share with you Acts 15 as a model 
for unity in the church. Acts 15 as a model for unity in the church. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 15. The book of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 verse 1 and up to verse 3. And here's how the Bible reads it. Acts 15 as a model for unity in the church. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispution with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Notice what happened in Acts 15. So a, dis- a-, a dispute arose up in the church and they were arguing about circumcision. Replace circumcision with any issue the church is dealing with today. It could be evolution versus creation. It could be women ordination. It could be any issue. The nature of Christ. All these, you know, uh, favored uh, uh, issues that we like to debate about. So, there arose differences in the church. And when the, the differences arose, as the Bible says, they decided... They determined that Paul and Barnabas, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas and others should go to Jerusalem. Should go to Jerusalem. Now, notice verse 6 and 7. So they arrived in Jerusalem, they met with the apostles and every other representative. By the way, do you notice that Paul and Barnabas were sent by a local church? They were sent to Jerusalem. They were sent to Jerusalem. This is the representative form of church government that we also have. We send delegates to the general conference. So they sent Paul and Barnabas to the general conference of Jerusalem to discuss this issue. So verse 6 and verse 7, And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, now, that's a strong word, when there had been much disputing. So, one side presented its case. We must have circumcision. And the other side also sat on the other side. We should not have circumcision. So they discussed this issue. They debated this issue. Nothing was left off the table. Everything was discussed. All the, the apostles were there. And the delegates from different parts of the church were there to discuss this issue. How should we resolve this issue? This was at the general conference of Jerusalem. They were debating this issue. And then Peter arose up, verse 7, and said unto them, and so Peter started talking, waxing eloquently, but I would like to point to how James concludes this. How James concludes this. Notice verse 15. And to this agree the words of the prophets, Let's begin from verse 13. Sorry. Let's begin from verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, 
Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simon has declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Verse 15. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. As it is written. So, James points the entire council, the entire Jerusalem conference, the, the entire general conference of Jerusalem, he points them where? As it is written. So he appeals to what? To the authority of the Bible. Notice how they resolve their differences. They resolve their differences based on scripture, based on the Bible. So, we notice in verse 7 that they discuss this difference these issues, these differences that were arising amongst them, they discussed them. One side presented its case. The other side presented its case. And when they discussed this, in the end, at the end of the day, they didn't appeal to one's culture. Amen? They didn't appeal to one's education. They didn't appeal to, to, to one's you know, home country, to one's division, to one's church. They appealed to the authority of Scripture. James pointed them as it is written. This should be the basis on which we resolve our differences in the church. We appeal to the authority of Scripture. Jerusalem, Acts 15, as a model of unity for the church. So as long as we appeal to what division you come from, to your culture, we are going to have these differences. As long as we appeal to your education, we are going to have these differences. But James brings the entire council together and says, as it is written, he appeals to the authority of Scripture. So I would like to suggest uh, the way to resolve our issues in our church is to appeal to the authority of Scripture, the unerring word of God. Now, verse 16 Verse 15, it concludes with, as it is written, verse 16, After this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the, ruin, the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. James continues, continues to, 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 to appeal to the authority of Scripture. Now, notice after James had finished appealing to Scripture, notice verse 22. Then pleased it the apostles and the elders with the whole church, to send chosen men. Now, notice, in verse 16, we were introduced that each side, each side debated its case. Each side presented its case. Verse, but at the, end, at the end of discussing this issue, in verse 22, everyone put aside their differences. Amen? Everyone put aside their differences because they realized what the Word of God teaches. James appealed to the authority of Scripture, and everyone put aside their culture. Everyone put aside their education. They put aside what church they come from, what, division, what influential division they come from. They put aside all this. If it was the church of Corinth, they put aside their differences. If it was the church that was giving the most tithe, they put it aside. But they appealed to the authority of Scripture. Now, verse 22, verse 22, it says, the whole church, it didn't say one section of the church, it said the whole church agreed to the decision 
of the general conference in session. The whole church, the whole church agreed to this decision. Ellen White refers to this Jerusalem assembly as a general council or simply as a council, which in our today's terms we can say this was the general conference in session. This was the general conference in session. In fact, Ellen White reminds us in this uh, long passage, he reminds us, I'll read it uh, from the last three sentences. God has ordained that the representatives of his church from all parts of the earth, when assembled in a general conference, shall have authority. Did you know that next to the Bible, the greatest authority we have here on earth is the general conference in session? Exactly what happened in where? In Jerusalem. When the general conference is in session, the decision that the general conference reaches also is an authority. Amen? That means that even if I'm from, wherever, regardless where I'm from, I put aside my differences and abide to the general conference decision. Amen? Because we believe the church is not Babylon. Not at all. We believe the church is guided by God. And when men and women who have had experience with God are sent to the Jerusalem conference, to the Jerusalem council, to meet and discuss these issues out, and they debate these issues out, and they appeal, notice my words, and they appeal to the authority of Scripture, we put aside our differences and agree with the general conference in session. Amen? That's what has held also our church together. The highest authority on earth here has been placed in the general conference. If the general conference in session is not acting, there is general conference executive committee that meets twice a year. General conference. Acts 15 as a model for unity of the church. So that implies that... that no matter what division you're from, no matter what local church you're from, you cannot just decide to go against your own way. Because the whole church, as Acts 15.22 says, have decided to agree on this. So why would you decide to go on your own way when the general conference, when the church in session has agreed? That's the question. The whole church agreed why would you want to go your own way? The basis for unity in the church. Acts 15. Fourthly, I'd like to share with you the basis for Adventist unity. Our unique theology. Our doctrinal oneness. As we read in Ephesians 4.13, there is this call to unity of faith. The unity of mind. Can you, can you imagine? I was born in Rwanda. I don't know where you come from. But here we come. We can share a meal. We can laugh. Because we share some things in common. As I mentioned yesterday, we have many things in common than the things that divide us. We have many things in common than the things that divide us. Our unique theology. Our doctrinal oneness. We share many beliefs. Why not? Be united. 
Why not be united? But also with this unique theology comes the challenge to adhere to biblical presuppositions, which implies I cannot just assume, take things I study in psychology, things I study in philosophy, and assume them to read the Bible. To read the Bible. We'll go a little bit in this as we look at the motivation towards unity. This also implies that we must apply Christ's method of Bible interpretation when we are reading the Bible. Let's turn to Luke. Luke 24, verse 27. Luke 24, verse 27. And the Bible reads, this is the, the road to Emmaus. In the beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice Christ's method of biblical interpretation. Christ begins from Moses. In other words, he takes the entire scripture in consideration. He did not negate Moses. He did not negate Isaiah, which means he cannot just choose and select whatever he wants. If we are doing a Bible study, we must study the Bible in its, entire, in, in its entirety. To look, if we are studying a particular issue, we must look at the Bible, what the Bible has to say on this particular issue. We must take the entire Bible into consideration. I cannot just take a favorite passage. I cannot just take what I like. But I must look at what the Bible has to say about the whole thing. And the fact that he, he began with Moses, he talked about all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. He appealed to scripture. Even when he was expounding about himself, he appealed to scripture. Not only just scripture, but the entire scripture. Did he appeal to philosophy? No. Did he appeal to culture? No. But he appealed only to scripture. Our method of also Bible study must be only within the context and the, and the confines of the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean that I cannot study the history to know what happened maybe during the time of Jehoiakim. It doesn't mean that I cannot study to know that in history. I can know that. And it's an authority. History is an authority. But does that history, when I want to know what God is speaking to me, does that history replace the Word of God? Our unique theology. Secondly, our unique mission. Our unique mission. So as long as we are united on theology, we are going also to be united on mission. So as long as we are united on our theology, we are going also to be united on our mission. Oftentimes we are divided on our mission. What is the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the world? What is the identity of the Seventh-day Adventist Church today? If you and I are confused about our identity, we are going to be confused also on our mission in the church. So we must have this unique understanding of our beliefs, this unique understanding of our theology, if we are going to have 
a proper perspective of our mission in this world. So that's why in some quarters of the church there is a question, should we point to Rome as Babylon? Is it necessary to call the Roman Catholic Church as Babylon? That's a missiological question. But the question is, does our theology support that missiological question? It all stems to our theology. If we are divided in thinking, we're going to also be divided in our mission. So we must have a doctrinal oneness if we are going to have the same mission. Our unique theology and our unique mission. And then, of course, we have our unique church structure. Dan touched on this. Our unique church structure. As we looked at the book of Acts, they sent representatives to the general conference. We also appoint representatives to go. We have a board of directors that appoints a a church board. A board of directors. A church board that that, that appoints representatives to go to the conference to elect the the president, the union, and the general conference to, uh, to elect the president a representative form of church government. So our unique church, church structure, our unique church polity that supports also our mission. As Dan mentioned today, if we are not united with our doctrine, with our theology, then only the church structure can unite us. But how long can the church structure unite us? Not so long. Not so long. So it is imperative that we be united on our theology. Because our church structure stems from our theology. Our mission stems from our theology. Amen? If we are held by church structure, it cannot be too long before we break apart. And there are so many churches, the Lutherans, the Baptists, that have splintered because of theological differences. So it rests upon you and I as church members to pray for our church. That we be united on theology, not church structure. Because if not, we too face the same dangers. So our unique theology, our unique mission, and our unique church structure. I would like to share with you my last point, which is on the motivation for the Adventist unity. Motivation towards the Adventist unity. Yesterday, we looked at conditions within Adventist church, issues dividing us. And we trace this to one root cause of our differences in the church. Number one, that is sin. Sin divides us. Sin is the greatest divider. And because sin distorts our understanding, because sin distorts our mind, we cannot also interpret, interpret or read reality as it is. We cannot even read the Bible as it is. So we need a transformation of the heart in order to see as God sees. So we have differences in thinking as well. And so we have, we mentioned about four schools of thought in the Adventist church. So we looked at the conditions within our Adventist church. So given the conditions within our church, we should be motivated to seek unity if we love our church. 
We should seek unity if we love our church. We should be praying for our church if we want unity. Because it won't be too long unless something happens and our church can be splintered. And we don't want to see that. We must pray for our church. We must pray for the unity of the church. Because as Christ said in John 17, when the church is united, it will be a testimony to the world that Christ was sent by God. That Christ is God. That Christ is a high priest ministry, minister. That Christ intercedes on our behalf. Everything we talk about, everything we love about Christ can be only be realized by the world if we are united. Secondly, we looked at the conditions within the evangelical community. We looked at their theological differences and their divisions happening within the evangelical community. May I suggest to you that this is a hint for us that this is the time to do evangelism. If we are united, these differences we are seeing in other churches, it is our time to do evangelism. Because people are searching. As their, church, as their churches are dividing, we have the opportunity to witness to them with our unity in our church. If we are united, we'll have opportunity to witness to churches that are being divided. Evangelical communities being divided from left and right. And not only evangelical community, but even other Christian churches are being divided on left and right. Motivation towards unity in the church. And because of these this, this, this differences in these churches, some of them are returning to Rome. Some of them are returning to Rome. I'd like to share with you one few unique things that we have as Adventist Church, beginning with the understanding of God, as I briefly mentioned yesterday. Do you know that most churches, most churches understand God from a Greek perspective, a Greek philosophy perspective? It is us who have been privileged as a church to understand God from a biblical perspective, from the Bible perspective. The reason most of these churches are being divided is because, number one, they are divided in their understanding of God as well. So we have a unique privilege to witness to them our understanding of God. I'll share with you one of our unique doctrines. For example, our unique doctrine that the atonement didn't finish on the cross. That Christ continues on even in the, in the heavenly sanctuary to minister, to minister on our behalf. That's uniquely Adventist message. That's the understanding of God because Christ is God. No one else shares that but us. And because of this, 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 this misunderstanding of God outside the Adventist church, we have the opportunity to witness to them motivation for unity in our church. As we are surveying the landscape of other churches, as they are being divided left and right, we have the opportunity to witness to them. Because we have a unique understanding of God. And of course, we can look at the advent of postmodernism and the philosophical hermeneutics and all this. But we have a uniqueness of theology. 
And if we are united on this, we can be a great witness to the world. The motivation towards unity in the Adventist church, our unique theology alone should unite us to be a witness to the world. We have something that no one else has. You don't believe me. We have something that no one else has. I only hear two amens. We have something that only us have, no one else. God has given us the privilege of knowing him that no one else has. has. And it's an opportunity for us to witness to them. To witness to them. You know, as, as even, even it has been a, 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 a thought that has been regurgitated over and over and over again. How should we witness in a postmodern culture? You know, as Adventists, we have this great, great controversy story. This great controversy story. I became an Adventist after reading the great controversy six years ago. G- getting this bigger picture of life. We have the, great, the uniqueness of the great controversy story to share. In the context of the postmodernism, which we want a story that makes sense. No one else tells the story as we tell it. No one else tells the story as we tell it. If you want to know our story, just read the book Great Controversy. In its entirety. That's our unique story. That's our unique story. Motivation towards unity. That we have a common story to share that no one else has. No one, it, it, it gives a big picture that is coherent, consistent, and it makes sense. And it is Bible-based. And it is Bible-based. No one else gives that picture that is complete, that makes sense, that is coherent, and it is Bible-based. The only other church that comes close is the Roman Catholic Church. But that is because it is based on philosophy, not on the Bible. Everyone else is in the middle. That's why that, that those who are not making sense are returning to Rome. And that's why prophecy tells us that in the end, there will be only two groups. The Adventists and those who keep the Sunday. Who are mainly going to be the Catholic Church. Who are going to be the Catholics. There is no middle ground. Two groups that only make sense. One is rootly based on the Bible. The other one is rootly based on philosophy. So I ask you today, who do you want to choose? Motivation towards unity. No one tells our story like anyone else but us. We have a unique story to share. I want to end on this note since our time is up. And I would like to open it up for questions. And then we'll have a season of prayer. Let's pray before we entertain questions. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this moment that we can share exploring this subject of unity in the church. We thank you, Father, for the great message you've given us, for the way in which you have revealed yourself to us. We pray that, Lord, this may motivate us to be united. This unity truly is a divine imperative. 
and we need it in our church today. May because of what you have given us, motivate us to be united. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.